Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville, North Carolina, 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world. And also heard on other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, wherever you are, playing that good music on those great guitars you own. If you would like to reach out to Walter, walterparks.com is a good place to start. And if you'd like to reach out to me or get in touch with me, nave at jamesnave.com. It's a great way to connect. Speaking of connecting, I have a, a guest today, and she's going to be one of the contributors on WPVM-FM, and we're looking forward to having her voice on the air with all the rest of the wonderful contributors. Her name is Laurie Richardoni, and I met Laurie on a Zoom call when she was attending one of the wonderful trainings that Davine Dial does for all the people who contribute to WPVM-FM. I learned that Laurie loves gluten-free cooking and she has gone beyond the love of it she's made it into a profession she does all kinds of work around nutrition and food and so today we'll start our conversation with that and go from there so laurie welcome to twice five miles radio well thank you very much james it's great to be here that was a great intro appreciate it well i'm glad you did appreciate it and i would like to start this conversation by asking the obvious question that's likely on more than one uh, person's mind who's listening out there today. When you say gluten, what do you mean by gluten? And why is being gluten-free something that's preferable? What's, what's, what's going on here? It's a good question. A couple of proteins going together create gluten. And a lot of people's systems, mine included, cannot tolerate it. It's wheat, essentially other flowers as well, but primarily wheat. Over the years, so many people have really gone gluten-free, not, not even because maybe they're celiac, which is a disease. I mean, people could get really, really sick if they have celiac, if they eat gluten, but just a lot of people have sensitivities to it, myself included. What brought me on this path of gluten-free is about 10 years ago, I had chronic stomach aches, and headaches. And it was suggested to me that I stop eating wheat. And I did that. And within days, I did not have any stomach aches. And I had stomach aches for a couple of years. You know, it's one of those things you just tolerate becomes part of your life. So I've been on a gluten free diet for many, many years. And, you know, it's actually in some ways, much more interesting than wheat, because there are so many possibilities in eating this way. Almond flour, buckwheat flour, chestnut flour. I mean, I could name 20 different possibilities here, which I won't right now, but um, it actually makes for a really interesting way to cook, just opens up new possibilities. Over the centuries, people have used all kinds of grain, and I would imagine wheat included, plus other grain that has gluten in it naturally. Yes. So why is it more important to be gluten-free now than, say, a, a thousand years ago? What, what's changed or has it changed? It has changed, actually. And what's changed is the way that we grow our food chemicals, pesticides, all kinds of messing with mother nature, if you will. 
and the way we process certain foods as well, wheat being one of them. It's not as pure and clean. It's just we've really changed the way we've grown food, our soil, which is why I'm such a big advocate of organic farming, which is one of the reasons why I moved to Asheville because there's just a plethora of organic farmers here, keeping that soil cleaner without all the pesticides and chemicals. So that's a big piece of it too. I think a lot of the sensitivities come with how we are treating the land and the way we, we grow food now. It's just, it's very different. So if someone decided to go into the food growing business, the wheat growing business in the old fashioned way, like they once did without all of the processing that goes on. Yes. And they, you get this wonderful wheat that's raised like it was a thousand years ago. Would the gluten still be a problem if it was raised well, in the old way? You know, it's interesting you say that, James, because when I go to Italy or abroad, France, uh, and I spent a lot of time over the years in Italy, and even though I still absolutely had that sensitivity to eating wheat, I could go to Naples and have their pizza. I could have a croissant in France. I think that they still do certain practices. It's just, it's different. Some people would argue that you're on vacation and you don't have the stress of daily life so your body can tolerate more. And I probably think that's partly true, but I do know that when I'm in Italy and different places that I can tolerate eating wheat a little bit better. For me now, I don't even consider cheating or, or eating it. I just know that it's not favorable for my body. And I think a lot of people too, they don't even necessarily make the connection that what I'm eating is why I have some kind of situation going on. They don't make the connection with the food. Gluten, it just so many people are sensitive to it. And a lot of people just eat that way because they feel better. It's much easier to digest, lower in carbs. I wrote an article on the myth of gluten-free because a lot of people think it's of lesser cuisine and it, it isn't anymore if you know what to do with ingredients. So it's just another opportunity to consider working with different ingredients. And there's a bakery in Taos, New Mexico called Wild Leaven Bread. And their bread is very expensive. A half a loaf is like $7. And they use all the old ingredients, the old seeds, the old yes. stone ground approach. And they do use wheat and other gluten products. Yeah, and yet I eat the bread myself and it's really, really great. Their claim is it has, the, has gluten, but it's also the old fashioned way of doing it. So it's a bit like going to Italy here yes. in New Mexico. Yes. And, you know, it makes me think of Dan Barber. I don't know if you know this name. He is a chef and he has a restaurant, I think in upstate New York and also New York and has a farm and they grow their own wheat. He takes his bread very seriously. And apparently it's easy to, to digest just what you're talking about. So there are some artisans out there that are doing this, which is very exciting. And uh, the next time I go to New York, if I could ever travel again and his restaurant is open, I will go and experiment with that because I would be really curious to see if I can tolerate it because I'm someone that has just not eaten wheat for a number of years. And you gave us the word I was looking for, artisan. 
the artisan bread. That's what they that's, call it. It's artisan right. bread. And that's yes. I love that word because it suggests the, the art of things, making things from a non-commercial point of view. So we are back to the modern moment, which is now. And so much of what we consume commercially off the shelf is processed, messed with, fooled around with, et cetera, et cetera. In some ways, this idea of gluten-free suggests that we look back to the artisan times, not only for our bread, but for other things that we are consuming and being involved with. So perhaps the beef with gluten is more of a, a modern beef around how it's processed, no pun intended, organic beef, whatever, we're throwing all that in. Mm-hmm. But perhaps mm-hmm. the problem with gluten is that that it's more the modern approach that we're talking about. If we were all eating the more artisan products, we might not have the same problem. But then that brings up the issues of mass producing food to feed all the people in the country. So it's it's yes. a really big problem because if you can afford to buy the $7 loaf of bread. Great. I, I That's wonderful. But if you have four children and sure. you're working a minimum wage job, trying to hold things together, that slice of bread at the grocery store takes on a very different meaning. It does. And that's a good point. Our culture eats processed food 80% of the time, farm animals that have antibiotics and hormones and all of that. And of course, it does cost more money to eat organically grown food if you're getting in the supermarket. But if you're getting that food by your local farmer, like I have a direct relationship with my farmers here. One of my farmers, her produce, I'm always telling her, you know, Anne, you should, you could charge a little bit more money for this. I'm so surprised how inexpensive certain things are. So I think you have to do some research around that because there are on a local level. And then of course you're supporting your farmers and that's a beautiful thing as well. And an opportunity too, particularly right now to, you know, make your own bread. And of course, not everyone has the time to do that, James. I realize that. But that $7 loaf of artisan bread, you know, you were talking about, there are breads that are healthier, that are more cost effective. Don't shop on the inside of of a supermarket, which is all processed food. When you go into the supermarket, shop the exterior of the market. Gluten-free food as well. Gluten-free alone does not mean you're eating a healthy diet. There's a lot of junk food out there that's gluten-free, but still processed. So I think it's really about just eating less processed food. Maybe if you have an opportunity, weather allows to, and even if you live in an apartment, if you have a little terrace, grow some herbs, grow some lettuces, start to participate a little bit more in creating your own food, which I think we're going in that direction, you know, really to sustain now 7 billion people on the planet. We're going to have to start getting a little bit more organic in the process of, of making food. Yeah, I was thinking when you said that, that cotton candy at the state fair may be gluten-free because all it is is sugar and water spun into this light ball that usually has some red dye in it to make it look pretty. Red dye number five. Red dye number five (laughs) and cotton candy is gluten-free. Staying on the idea of the outskirts of the grocery store, give us an idea of what a menu would look like if it were gluten-free. Well, it's actually very, very, very varied. And, you know, interestingly, again, going back to Italy and my many trips, they eat 
primarily in, in some ways, of course, there's pasta, which has wheat, a gluten-free diet. There are almond focaccia, chestnut flour, some of the flours that I named earlier. So you can have breads, you could still have pasta, you could still have all of those things. There are some great brands out there that make gluten-free pasta, and I've tried all of them. When I say shop on the exterior part of the market, you know, more produce, more whole foods, leafy green vegetables. It's not just gluten-free, but we want to eat healthy. Shopping the perimeter, making sure that your meats aren't ingested with antibiotics and hormones and things like that. Pro animal protein is gluten-free. Rice, you can make gorgeous risottos and there are so many beautiful dishes and rice and beans in terms of what's economical, you know, what's affordable for people because that's important for a lot of folks. Like if you know what to do with ingredients, you get some fresh herbs, you make a big pot of beans and rice that could last you for a few days or for the week. But you want to really limit the boxed food, the processed food. So, you know, gluten-free diet is very, very varied. It's not limited. I mean, we can just go on and talk about so many different ways. Fritters, you could stuff squash blossoms. I mean, there's so many beautiful ways to eat that just happen to be naturally gluten-free. The combination of beans and rice, why is that so effective? Well, beans and rice is like a complete meal. You have your protein, you have a healthy starch, you have some complex carbohydrates in your beans. So it's actually a well-balanced meal for the most part, in my opinion. I would throw some greens in there just to really kind of keep it colorful too. As a health coach, I tell people to make sure your plate is colorful. Eat like the rainbow, carrots, squash, and that's where seasonal food comes in as well. Getting back to answer your question, I get very excited and passionate when I talk about food. So I could segue a little bit. As I said, rice and beans, you know, you've got your protein, your complex carbs, it's very satisfying. And if it made well, as good as anything, delicious, the right amount of garlic and spices and some fresh rosemary, you know, some really good extra virgin olive oil, you know, a little squeeze of lemon. I think lemon should be on everything. I really mean that. Lemon makes everything taste better. So that's why it's, I think part of it is satisfying, but you might eat rice and beans more in the winter time because it's a little bit more comfort food. You know, we crave different foods in the winter than we do in the summer. So I think it has to do with cravings as well and what our body actually naturally craves in different seasons. So as a health coach during this time of covid 19 pandemic, which is going on and will, I think, continue to go on at least for a fair amount of time longer. How has your approach changed with people in terms of coaching them from a healthy point of view? I think of my mother. I'm her informal health coach and have been for a long time. You know, we have to really just keep our immune system strong. And what I share with people really hasn't changed, James, because of COVID, because I just, I communicate the same information, which, because I believe food is medicine. We don't need to have other antibiotics and things like that, in my opinion, and science has proven that as well with certain foods, eating certain foods. So I tell people to really keep your immune system strong, and there are ways to do that with certain foods, but, you know, stress and, and all of that. I mean, it's not 
just one thing because, I mean, you could eat kale and eat organically your whole life, James, but if you have a lot of stress in your life or angry and a negative thinker, your body is not going to be healthy. So I really talk to people and work with people on, you know, I always do a health history with people to get a sense of their background, to see what they're eating, what their lifestyle is, who they are a little bit. And really, as a health coach, you're kind of a detective. You ask certain questions, dig a little deeper, find out what people are doing in their lives that are maybe causing them to have stomach ache or something like that. But I think the most important thing right now is to keep a strong immune system. And there are ways to do that with very simple supplements, which are out there and available, um, you know, zinc, vitamin D3, uh, vitamin C, psyllium. I call it a COVID cocktail because those really, really are, are boosting our immune system. And that I think is the most important thing. You know, a lot of people that are getting sick also, their immune system's compromised. What are you eating? How are you talking to yourself? Are you taking some walks? Are you doing some things that keep you grounded and balanced in addition to eating well? I'd like for you to unpack a bit more about the idea of the negative thoughts and how they affect the physiology. Most of us humans, we live in our mind for the most part. You know, I call it the monkey mind. You know, the mind plays a, a beautiful role if we have to figure out how to do something. So then the mind could be really important. But really, I think that we have to get out of our minds a little bit, get more into our body, get more into our true self and who we really are, incredible, resourceful, healthy beings. Practice every day. That's where meditation comes in that is really beneficial. I start my day every day being thankful, just saying thank you. That if you just do that every day, that will start to change some of the physiological elements and brain waves, our nervous system. The brain needs washing, essentially, James. We have to rewire our brain. And a lot of that wiring from when we were born, you know, parents, our culture, all of that. So it does take some time and, and a real commitment to really want to, one, be aware that, okay, I'm in my mind and I'm thinking, you know, a lot of my thoughts throughout the day are very negative. They're not really positive thoughts. And then that's connected to like, how am I feeling in my body? I have all these ailments going on. So it's a practice of paying attention to the mind and feeding our brain really healthy foods. The brain is made up of 60% fat. The brain has to be fed differently than the rest of our organs, which is pretty fascinating to me. But we need fat for the brain, but healthy fats, olive oil, coconut oil, avocados, nuts and seeds. We have to feed the brain those foods to really help with that rewiring in a positive way. You mentioned rewiring, and we hear that term a lot. Oh, we need to rewire the brain. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, we are basically electric generators, the human body. So That's right. much of what we do is can be measured electronically by different kinds of machines. And the wiring in our bodies, not just our brains, but throughout our bodies is quite extensive. And I was wondering, when we say rewiring, I'm wondering if maybe it's not rewiring in the sense of taking one connection and putting it somewhere else 
and removing it from a previous connection. I wonder if it's more the negative thoughts would go through one wiring system and deliver their motivation to the chemical system that we also have in our body. And positive thoughts would go through a different wiring system and deliver different kinds of motivators to the chemical generators we have in our bodies, and thus a different response, a different feeling. One would feel good, one would feel bad. And so the negative thoughts or the negative verbalizations may just be the cue for that whole system to engage, not a whole lot different than a a computer system would engage and send the information in different directions. That's right. We are a computer system. And I also know that we are made up of energy, just like everything on the planet is energy. A rock is energy. Yes, in terms of maybe, you know, rewiring the way you just described it is, 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 is a good way to describe it. It makes me think of Joe Dispenza. I don't know if you know this name. He has a book that I'm currently reading, um, Becoming Supernatural. Meaning that again, you know, he was told he was in a, I think it was a biking accident. He he was told by the best doctors in the world that he will never walk again. And through his work, travels all over the world teaching the rewiring, to use that term, of how we have to really take more control, for a lack of another word, of the thoughts that we think every day and the people that we surround ourselves with, and to really start paying more attention about that. And practice being in a more positive or neutral place. And I think meditation, not just sitting there with your legs crossed in a lotus position, but meditation in that visualization is very powerful. You could change things through visualization. Now, I'm not saying it happens overnight, but it can actually happen really quickly. Uh, You know, I know myself before our interview today, I did a little 10 minute meditation and just sat um, just to ground myself and it shifts everything. Like who we think we are could really change in a matter of moments if we get to that place of, I am pure energy, love, really. It it does take some effort. It does take a a lot of practice. It depends how I think committed we are to really feeling our best and living a full, happy life. We're meant to be happy. You ask the Dalai Lama the meaning of life, he says it's to be happy. Well, I always feel better when I'm happy than when I'm miserable. Maybe that's evidence. And of course, I've said this a few times on the show. When I've talked to a lot of people, we often do move around to the, we often do move into the idea that all things are made of energy. And I completely accept that idea. It's proven out over and over again. Every day the sun comes up. The stars twinkle in the sky. Some are gone, only see the light because the stars are billions of years old. I see the animals. I feel the wind. I watch the seasons change. How could one conclude anything other than it's energetic, it's energy, it's power, it's the pulsing universe infinitely available to us in its infinity? Amen to that. (laughs) I'm a critical thinker and I'm a curious person and I always have been. So I think about these things and and whether we're conscious of it or not, we're all on a spiritual journey 
that's why we're here ultimately. And I think you have to be a little curious and a critical thinker. Don't just accept something. There's a lot of things that are being put out there all the time, not just now. It's like, well, okay, is this really true? You know, it makes me think of Byron Katie posing four questions. And one of them, is this true? And a lot of that truth is subjective and comes from perspective. So I do believe that one truth is that we are all energy and, and made of the same thing and, and which is really love ultimately. But truth is subjective. I mean, it makes me think of growing up with my sister, who we grew up in the same household with the same parents, and we had a completely different experience. It's just one example in terms of how we view the world. Some people view the world as a fearful place. And I do believe that if you view the world as a fearful place, it's going to show up fearful. Quantum physics, the law of attraction, like begets like. I do believe that truth is something that is through our eyes. We have like a movie camera we're looking out into the world with. And depending on who you are and where you came from culturally, how you were raised, belief systems, really powerful. So all of those elements certainly have a lot to do with the truth, quotation marks, because the truth is subjective. I would like to go back to Mother Earth for a moment. The seasons, if you just pay attention to all the different seasons, nature is intelligent. There's intelligence there. If we just really could tap into that a little bit more, I mean, that's a truth that I think is not changing in terms of in spring, summer, winter, fall, we have certain truths there. Nature is intelligent. Certain things grow or don't grow or die. There's intelligence there. And Laurie, on that note of intelligence, if you don't mind, I'd like to pause for just a moment for a station break. My friends, you are listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and also heard on other community radio stations like, like Cultural Energy Radio, KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank you, Walter Parks, for the theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. I'd like to also tell you, if you would like to reach out to me, my website is jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. When you go there, all you have to do is press the contact button. And when you press send, that's exactly what will happen. I will receive and then respond back. I would love to hear from you. What are you up to? What's your story? What side of the fence are you standing on? If you would like to tell me that story, I would love to hear it. JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. If you'd like to know more about Twice Five Miles, the stuff nobody teaches you, little things to get you over the finish line, plus all sorts of other tidbits, TwiceFiveMiles.com is a great place to, to go. TwiceFiveMiles.com. And so now let's get back to our conversation with Lori, who's Dwelling on the idea of truth, is truth subjective? Can it be measured? We've also been talking about food, gluten-free food, as well as just the good food from the garden. So when you plant your peas or whatever you're going to plant as the season rolls around toward the planting time, 
Good luck on that. I'll bet you'll have a good time nurturing those plants out of the soil and then putting them on the table for some wonderful nutritional meals. So, Lori, I know you can tie nutritional meals to cooking. I'm wondering if you can tie nutritional meals and cooking to truth. I'm now thinking of a pot of water on the stove. The burner is on high, gas or electric. Right. Red hot burner and the, and the pot of water's on the stove. A truth that we could all agree to right now is if you leave that water boiling on the stove, eventually that water will no longer be in the pot. And if you leave that stove on the water, not in the pot, the pot will eventually heat up and you could even cause a fire in your house. The whole thing could burn the house down. We can all agree on that truth because sure. it's one that has been proven over and over and yes. over again. We can also think of a bitter cold day. And if you drench yourself in the same water, no longer boiling, and you walk out with no clothes on in the bitter cold, the truth of the matter is within a short period of time, you will fall asleep quietly and never wake up again. So that's another kind of truth that we know. And yet the kind of truth that we so often try to find is the more elusive truth. Like, how do I feel about something today? What is my opinion? And that changes like the sea going back and forth, ever changing, unlike the pot boiling and the water vaporizing into the, into the atmosphere. Absolutely. And it made me think about how I feel differently about things now or believe, have a belief system about certain things now very different than I did five years ago, 10 years ago. Just that definitely evolves and changes. The mystery of life, that truth. And it is a mystery. No one really knows for sure why certain things happen. We could speculate why things happen. And again, everyone will have a different experience. Whatever the experience is, we will see it and hold it in a different way. I mean, even bringing it back to food. You know, I could make something that I find really delicious and nurturing, and someone could eat it and says, this is the worst thing I've ever eaten. Another example of a, a subjective uh, truth. Indeed, we have the subjective truth, and then we have the mathematical truth. And we dance back and forth between both of those. And in a way, that's a kind of participation in inquiry that lasts a lifetime. You can also participate in to inquiry about many things like your relationship with the food you eat. So, Lori, do you have any thoughts on how one might participate how we can participate is, and how I participate when I don't know something is I ask questions. I'll say, I'm not familiar with that. Tell me a little bit more about that. And that's a way to participate in a conversation. A nice clarification, because that's true. And it also suggests listening. It's so important to listen. Listening is something that we have to learn how to do. It is a skill and it's so important. I mean, don't we all want to feel heard and listened to? And, you know, we get so excited. I mean, so many people really don't have that skill and they don't listen. 
you look at the news, everyone's talking at the same time. How could you possibly hear what they're talking about? No one's listening. You're, everyone's talking. That's something that I really practice and will acknowledge when I interrupt, like, excuse me, I interrupted because I think listening is so important. And people want to be heard, as you said, and they like to listen, which brings me around to your upcoming opportunity with WPVM-FM, you as a contributor. Why are you thinking about moving in the direction of, of a radio show? And how does that fit into the business you have, which gives me also another opportunity as well as you to tell us what your website is and connect us a little more with what you're doing from a yes. business point of view and how you're delivering your message to the world. And I'm asking this because I, I'd like to know more about it. Also, people out there might have a message they would like to deliver. Perhaps you can give them some insight on how they could do their work in a broader yes. way. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the trajectory of life, James, we never really know where it's going to take us. And the show, A Taste for All Seasons, is what it's called. It's a cooking, cultural, educational, and inspirational way to explore the world of food. And that's a big world. And with the philosophy of, of eating and cooking with the seasons in the background, as a health coach as well, I get to communicate to people, which is so important to me, a way to eat. And it's a lifestyle for sure. Radio wasn't a place I was necessarily going, but I love the idea that I could have an opportunity to communicate to people the world of food and why eating seasonally is so delicious and beneficial. And also, I will always explore a recipe, talk people through a recipe and the history of whatever that ingredient is, where it comes from, why it is that, certain methods and techniques. And I love sharing food. I love teaching people how to cook. I'm a teacher. I'm an educator. I'm very passionate about food as my medium, if you will. Radio will give me an opportunity to really get that message out to a lot of people that are curious cooks, but also want to live a healthy lifestyle and are curious about why should I eat that, Lori? What's so important about uh, eating that or having this sort of lifestyle? So cooking is definitely my passion. I, you know, I grew up in a family of restaurateurs. My father was a Northern Italian chef. I've been cooking since I'm 10 years old. He was one of my early teachers. And even though my path has taken me in different directions, the kitchen has always been my respite, my happy place. And I just want to offer that experience and what knowledge that I have with uh, an audience. You also have lots of other elements in your business offerings you use to get your word out. I've seen some of your videos. I know you have a great website that you've de developed. So could you tell folks a bit about some of the elements that you've put together that help you get your word out in a way to help them maybe get their word out as well? Yes. Um, and my website, if for those that are interested, if they want to take a look, is laurierichardoni.com. Um, I also have a YouTube channel is one way that I communicate with a little short kind of tutorials, cooking classes. I'm in the process right now of putting virtual, more in-depth cooking classes together that will be available on my website, subscription-wise or member-wise. So that's a way that I could share 
food with people. Could you say your website one more time and please spell your name so people can get that right? Absolutely. So it's laurierichardoni.com. It's L-A-U-R-I-E-R-I-C-H-A-R-D-O-N-E. You know, I'm also in the, in the process of uh, working on a seasonal cookbook. And I have a little ebook that's actually on my website, just with some healthy, beautiful recipes. It was for the holidays, but you could make these recipes anytime. So my website, my YouTube channels, I have Instagram page, and of course, social media these days is a way to speak to the community and share the, with the community the importance of eating delicious, healthy food, and just really learning how to cook in a simple way that's really accessible to people also. Because not everyone is a chef and not everyone has that background and understanding. And part of my show will also be about um, having an understanding of what has food taste good. What are the elements that has food taste good? So I'm really excited to share that and deliver that message with people. Do you think your passion for cooking has given you the patience to, over the years, learn all of the other skills you need in order to make your offering happen? It's hard to start out knowing all of the information around social media, how to make the equipment work, how to use the cameras, how to engage the websites, the back end, all of these terms that are familiar yes. to you and to me, but for somebody out there just beginning, they're going, yes. my goodness, I, I I love what I do, but how will I ever learn all of that other stuff that, yes. will, that I must know in order to make this work? Yes, that's a great question. I'm glad that you asked it. I'm a creative. I've always been a creative. A lot of creatives, artists, if you will, how you get, get your work out there is not something necessarily that comes natural. For example, I think I shared this with you when we spoke last, I shoot my own videos. When I first got my camera, I didn't even want to open up the box. I was intimidated by this camera. And now I'm shooting my own videos. So I really would tell people, one, be patient with yourself because it could be very overwhelming and I'm still learning you will never finish learning because as soon as you finish something, okay, now I'm learning something new and I have to learn, you know, in a new way via radio or something, there's always going to be something that you have to teach yourself. I had a salon in Santa Fe for 20 years. I took a selling and marketing class. I took an advertising class. I educated myself. And again, it comes back to being curious. So I think that there's so much information out there. Um, and if people have the desire, you, you just have to really, again, be patient with yourself and don't be intimidated and just take step by step. And one day, okay, I can do this now. And it's very rewarding and very exciting. And, and even with cooking, people think, oh, I can't cook. I don't know how to cook. Everyone could learn how to cook. It's just, again, that practice, that having an understanding of how something works and then taking it from there. Once we have basic elements, whether it's learning a video camera or learning how to cook or whatever it is, it takes practice and patience and being kind and gentle with ourselves. I, I, I would like to add that in because, uh, you know, not to be too hard on yourself and know that it will take time. I think that's good advice for any learning opportunity. Take it easy, learn a little yes. bit as you go along. Speaking of learning opportunities, you said 
when you do your show, you're going to offer recipes. Do you by chance have a simple recipe you could offer us? Making hot chocolate, for example. Yeah, I know hot chocolate. I, you know, I can't remember the last time I made hot chocolate, but a smoothie, you know, a lot of people drink smoothies in the morning and sometimes I'll have it in the evening. So some nice vegetables, whether it's kale or spinach. Now I'm a health coach. So this is going to be a healthy smoothie, some beautiful spinach or kale or whatever green you want to use some beautiful berries. Um, you could put a banana in there as well. Um, one of the nut milks or oat milk. So you have your milk, you have your berries, you have some veggies, some protein, you want to throw some hemp seeds in there, and just throw it in the blender. I like to also add some warm water in the wintertime because I think we need to eat hotter, warmer foods in the winter. Our body doesn't want cold food so in, in the morning. So that's just a little tip. Just throw it all in the blender, blend it up, add a little hot water to it, and you have something that will sustain you too, you know, for a few hours in terms of a breakfast. I call smoothies breakfast of champions. So Hopefully that wasn't too complicated because again, you know, what's easy for me might not be easy for someone else. So hopefully that was an easy user-friendly smoothie to make. What kind of blender would one use? As a chef, I have a Vitamix. I realize not everyone has a Vitamix, which is the creme de la creme for blenders. Food processor also you can do it in. Um, a high-speed blender is preferable, but um, those little bullets, I know a lot of people use in it. And then you have your container. You can take your drink out with you in the car if you know you can make your smoothie and if you're going out of the house and it's a little vessel that carries it. So uh, a lot of different blenders that range from, you know, $20 to $1,000. So somewhere, somewhere in between what is comfortable for you and the price point that works for you. And as we close the show, here's one other very practical question I'd like for you to answer. I'm going shopping and I go to the store and I shop on the, the fringes where the vegetables are. And I see the nice vegetables, the carrots, the kale, the beets, the sweet potatoes, whatever's there. And yes. I purchase those vegetables. How much time do I have between purchasing the vegetables and then cooking them before the vegetables start to lose their value? Well, of course, shopping in the supermarket is going to be different than vegetables from my farm or harvested the day before. I could have something for two weeks. When you're in the supermarket, look at the bottom of your vegetables. If it looks yellow or brown, that's just a way to choose vegetables and know if they're fresher. And ask your produce guy or girl, whomever that is, hey, when did this come in? Do you have anything in the back? I ask, they see me coming in the supermarket because I ask a lot of questions. So within five days, I would say I keep paper towels, another little tip in with the plastic if you have that in your refrigerator, because it will take some of the moisture out and you'll get a longer shelf life with it. So that's a good thing to do with your lettuces and all your greens and broccoli and really just about everything to get some moisture out. You'll have a longer shelf life. Closing it out with that little quick broccoli recipe. Broccoli soup. So broccoli head, two heads of soup, boiled water. You put your, just the florets of the broccoli, heavily salted water, have your water taste like the sea. You want it that salty. Then you take that, you put the broccoli in the blender, add enough water to make it as thick or as loose as you want, a little squeeze of lemon, and that's it. You have a delicious, healthy, vibrant broccoli soup. 
All right. And your website, one more time, just so people can reach out to you. Uh, it's laurierichardoni.com. So Laurie Richardoni, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to fill us in on what it means to be an enthusiastic, gluten-free chef. Well, James, thank you so much for the opportunity. This has just been a delight and I appreciate it and I'm grateful. Thank you. And thank you too, Laurie. I appreciate it as well. I hope this conversation has given you a little bit more insight into gluten-free cooking and and perhaps given you new insight and ideas into how you might improve your cooking time in the kitchen. I know when Lori mentioned Vitamix, I was a little excited about that idea of getting a Vitamix mixer. I remember once when I was in Portland, Maine, a friend of mine and I went to a local health food store and someone was there demonstrating a Vitamix mixer. And I have to say, I was really surprised to find that not only does it blend the smoothies, it can make ice cream, plus it can make hot soup. To this day, I have no idea quite how that works. If you own a Vitamix mixer, you probably already know how to make ice cream and soup and smoothies. Anyway, I was rather intrigued by it. I don't know if I'll ever buy a Vitamix mixer. Even so, I love the idea of one appliance doing all those little jobs. So who knows? We'll see. We have a little bit of time before the top of the hour, and with that, I thought I might reflect a little bit on my own relationship with cooking. Unlike Lori, I didn't grow up in the restaurant business. In fact, when I was growing up, I think my family may have gone to a restaurant once in a while. After church, we would go out for Sunday dinner to a local diner. I lived in West Asheville, and there were many local diners around the area, so we would occasionally leave church and go to the local diner, but mostly we would go to my grandmother's house for Sunday dinner. My grandmother would serve a roasted chicken, green beans, mashed potatoes. Of course, the Sunday after church dinners were very special to us, and I remember them fondly. I also remember my mother cooking bacon and sausage and eggs for me when I was getting ready to go to school. So the whole point of this is I didn't grow up in the restaurant business, nor did I have that much relationship to cooking other than I was the kid at the table and somebody served the food. So my childhood was never centered around going out to a restaurant. I do remember one Christmas when I was 10 years old, we were Christmas shopping, and my father said, I would like to take you to a new place that's just opened up on Tunnel Road. I think you will enjoy it. And we went to McDonald's. Now, if by chance you live in Asheville and you've ever driven through Boquetra Tunnel going east toward the Asheville Mall, you probably have seen the McDonald's sitting on the right about a half a mile down from the tunnel's entrance or the tunnel's exit, depending on which way you're headed. Well, that's the exact location where the original McDonald's sat when my father drove us there after we went Christmas shopping. My father parked the car, got out, walked past the golden arches where the little sign under the arches said over a million burgers sold, went in and came back with an armful of bags filled with burgers and french fries. And what I liked most especially was the chocolate milkshake. And I can assure you the buns that held those burgers that night were 
definitely not gluten-free. But they had some pickles and some maybe onions and a bit of ketchup, and we made a big mess in the back seat of the old car and enjoyed ourselves no end. I remember after we finished everything, my father stuffed all the trash into the bags and got back out of the car and walked over to the trash can and shoved all the bags in. I remember thinking, when I grow up, I'm going to drink a chocolate milkshake from McDonald's every day. Of course, that was a childhood aspiration, and I haven't had a chocolate milkshake from McDonald's every day. But I have had a few over the years, and I still remember them fondly. Funny enough, when I was a senior in high school, I ended up working at that McDonald's, and they still had the golden arches and the counter, and people would come in, and they would order their chocolate milkshakes, their fries, their burgers, and a few other things. I think they even had apple pies, fried apple pies as well. So while I said I didn't have much restaurant experience, I lied a little bit because I did have McDonald's in my life. And now that I think about it, the first time I ever cooked was when the manager assigned me to cook the fries. Those fries were just potatoes sliced in little thin bits and cooked in hot oil, served up in little bags to all the customers who came through the door. So skipping forward for a bit of time, when I was in my early 30s, I became much more interested in cooking by way of a friend of mine named Andrew Brown. And we lived in a place called Beetree Manor, which was on Beetree Road in Swannanoa, North Carolina. And it was a rather large house way out in the country. And we fancied ourselves as, as country squires. My friend Andrew was a very good cook. He had paid a lot of attention to cooking and how things were prepared. And he had a little garden and he would harvest the herbs and take a lot of time working over the stove. And so I remember I would talk with him and we would gather around the stove as he cooked. And I watched Andrew cook. He would chop garlic and he would put little spices in the frying pan and then put the vegetables into the olive oil and all of those things that make a, a dish really taste great. And his cooking was fantastic. And even to this day, he does a great job with all of the meals that he's made. He's continued on all his life developing his own recipes. So I started in my early 30s thinking about what it would be like to enjoy cooking. And I did learn a bit about it, and I can turn out a fairly nice meal. If if you ever had a chance to drop by my place for lunch, I could make you something very, very nice. One of the things that Andrew always had when he was cooking was an iron skillet. And Andrew spent tons and tons of time talking about how you protect your iron skillet and how you never wash it with soapy water. Always rub it with fresh water, no soap. Make sure that the, the iron is, is clean. And then he would put it on the stove and let it sit there for a few minutes and, and warm up. Didn't get it too hot, just warmed it up. And then he would smear a little olive oil or some kind of oil on the skillet because he wanted to season it and make it good for the next cooking. And I always loved the idea of, of an iron skillet. And so I started my cooking career, if you would like to call it that, with Andrew's inspiration. And, and over the years, I acquired a few iron skillets because I always liked to cook with iron skillets. A good iron skillet has even heat distribution 
And because it's an iron skillet, it leaves a remnant of iron in your food, which is good for the blood, they say, and I believe that's probably true. And another thing that's really great about an iron skillet, you don't have to heat it up all that much. You can heat it on low heat and it turns into almost an oven on top of your stove. And I will tell you, I have never dropped one on my toe. I imagine if I did drop it and it hit my foot, or if you dropped your iron skillet and it hit your foot, you probably would notice it. So the iron skillet, aside from falling off the stove and crashing into your foot, it's a fantastic way to cook food, which brings me around to my current iron skillet. My friend Tony Houston, who lives here in Taos, where I'm staying, he has a huge collection of iron skillets he's purchased over the last 10 years. I don't know how many iron skillets he has, maybe 500 of them. Some of them are very valuable. You can buy an iron skillet for $100, $200. Some even are more expensive than that because they're rare and they've been around since the 1800s. You can also go to the local store and buy an iron skillet for 20 bucks. Very different creatures, even though they both look almost the same. So since I've been here for a year in the pandemic times, I've been cooking a fair amount like a lot of people have. I imagine you maybe have too. And I've been doing it without an iron skillet. So about a week ago, I called my friend Tony up and said, Tony, do you have an iron skillet? And he says, well, absolutely. I have more than one. I'll bring a couple over for you to take a look. So he delivered Three iron skillets, the $50 iron skillet, the $20 iron skillet, and then one that wasn't really an iron skillet, but a good skillet nonetheless for $10. So he stood at the door with the three skillets in his hand, the $50 skillet, the $20 skillet, and the $10 non-iron skillet. I chose the $20 skillet because the $50 skillet was a little bit bigger than what I needed. The $20 skillet is a fairly large skillet that is fantastic. I I love it. I also call it a frying pan, but you know it's hard to fry in an iron skillet. Like I said, it's more like having a stove on top of your burner. So I'm happy to say I've cooked more than one good meal in my iron skillet so far, and I'm looking forward to more. Also, one other little benefit to the iron skillet, I've become emotionally attached to it. I know that sounds a little crazy. You get emotionally attached to an object. Uh, you maybe have had that experience yourself. So I'm really happy to have my iron skillet. Every day I rinse it with water, put it back on the stove on low heat, and after it warms up a bit, I season it with, with a bit of oil and set it aside for the next meal. I also have to confess I am still thinking about that Vitamix mixer. I don't know if I will order the thing, but I do have a vision of a Vitamix mixer and my iron skillet side by side on my kitchen counter. So now we have to leave the kitchen counter behind because we are reaching the top of the hour. And on that note, thank you ever so much for listening to the show, which is called Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPBM LP Asheville, 103.7, streaming it online wpvmfm.org the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI FM out of Taos, New Mexico Cultural Energy Radio it's called I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song thank you Walter Parks for, for all the music that you provide for the world WalterParks.com 
If you would like to connect with me, Nave at jamesnave.com is a good place to start. You can also visit my website, jamesnave.com, and find out more about what I'm up to. And if you would like to know more about how the name Twice Five Miles came to be, twice5miles.com is a good place to look. The idea for Twice Five Miles comes from a poem written by Samuel Taylor Coleridge titled Kubla Khan. And in that poem, you will find a line that says, So, twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And in that context, twice five miles is 25 square miles, which is a fair space to wander around in. So when I think of twice five miles and the conversations that I have on this show, like the one we had with Lori, and then the musings I had around going to McDonald's and getting my chocolate milkshake, I think of meandering for great distances. So how far can one go to get the story? That's really what this is all about. So thank you ever so much for listening to the story this week about gluten-free cooking and my musings on being in the kitchen. And if you decide to get yourself an iron skillet to put on the top of your stove, I wish you all the good luck in your search for that great iron skillet. And remember, always wash your iron skillet with warm water, never soap. And on that note, Thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really, really do appreciate your time. And I hope you tune in again to the next show. Until then, I'll catch you on the turnaround somewhere down the line.